getting some hands waving at me. Yes? Oh, yes. It's not that we forgot you, uh, but we are so happy that you're here. (laughs) If you're here for the first time, we normally make a practice of just welcoming and thanking you for coming, and we really are glad that you're here. Please know that. Love to get a chance to meet you afterwards, so uh, we just give a gift to you if, if you're here for the first time. So if that's true of you, would you just stand for a moment so we can welcome you and give you something? First time visitors. Yeah. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We're going to look this morning at, in part, what it means to be a functional member of the church, a positive vision of what that is, biblically speaking, how we can jump into the mission of God through the local church. But at the same time, we're going to be dealing with a huge contender with God's mission in 21st century American Christianity, and that would be consumerism. Consumerism has had an effect on modern Christianity that has rendered it to be what many call it cultural Christianity. Others call it the cultural captivity of the church. And since this particular issue of consumerism is always so close and ready at hand, it's almost as though, really, uh, Satan's brand new trick for this age is consumerism. And he puts it within a very short arm's reach of every church in modern society. Every church can just reach it, and it's right there, easy to access the impact of consumerism. Keith has talked many times about the secondhand smoke of culture and how it may seep into us without us even knowing that there's evidence that the worldly and secularistic mindset of consumerism has now gotten inside and diluted our mission as a church and is therefore hindering and hampering and slowing us down in being able to see the kingdom advanced through our church. And so we're going to be looking at that. And In that sense, 
to some degree, aspects of this message are not going to be real fun to preach um, because of the deep concerns that exist right now in our culture. And there are a lot of people talking about this. There's a lot of buzz going on and conversations happen, happening about this this problem of consumerism and a lot of guys are getting together and talking about how do we make this right how do we adjust the church the church is out to lunch it's not affecting the culture it's got its head stuck in the sand nobody's being affected or influenced by the gospel how do we all get into some big meeting some big table and talk it out about how we turn this thing around and get the church to pick back up a word that it dropped which is the word mission Somewhere along the line, the church has dropped the word mission from its vocabulary, and that word has been the propulsive power of the church for 2,000 years. So at this moment, there are critical steps to be taken if we're going to succeed as a church and do what God has tasked us to do, the reason why He has left us here. So these are deep concerns, and therefore, we're going to have to take a deep look at what's going on in our own hearts. Because it may be very well that many of us, by the time we're finished here, have to wrestle with the consumerism that is in our very own hearts. And the sense in which the mission is not the main thing in our lives. So we're going to be looking at this morning together. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we ask you for your help because without your spirit aiding us in this we won't see anything from your word much less change so would you come be by our side be the one who comes along and helps us understand your word and then not only helps us understand it but gets inside of our motivating mechanics and moves us toward what you desire for us. Lord, if that happens, this is just going to be wasted time. Please help us, God, by your spirit, by your power, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we look at Romans 12 and many other passages of Scripture, we can see that the New Testament is full of function. It's full of theology, and we love the theology of the New Testament. But theology always moves toward practice. We've said that a lot here, and that's important to say. Theology always goes toward action. It goes toward worship. It's not an end in itself. So we need the theology, but the theology is supposed to excite within us a passion to live for the glory of this great God that we've just seen in all the theology lessons that the New Testament gives us. And even in Romans in particular, here we've come to Romans chapter 12, and it's a critical turning point in this book. Because the first 11 chapters of this book are Paul's magnum opus of theology. It's, it's probably the greatest systematic theological treatise in the Bible. As far as if you're looking for what does salvation mean? What does it involve? What has God done? Everything is covered in Romans 1 through 11. And then we come to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And Paul's standing on this Everest of theology. After he's exploded into worship in the end of, of chapter 11. 
And now he stands on the Everest of this theological understanding of who God is and what salvation means for the people of God. And he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercy of God. And as soon as he transitions out of what we've just considered for 11 chapters, the mercy of God, everything goes functional real quick. Suddenly he's just passing out functional hats to the church. And he's saying, if we're going to be a part of this mission called the church, we've got stuff to do. So teachers teach and, and people doing mercy are doing mercy. And stuff is just happening all over the place. And there's this raucous of activity in this anthill called the Church of Rome. Everybody's moving. And he even says that in verse 3, beginning all of this. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. And then everything rolls out of that. So he's specifying this is not just to the guys who originally got this letter. Everyone who's hearing and reading this letter, they would read it publicly, needs to know you're on task for what I'm about to say. There's a gift that God has given you that he wants you to function in. And so the functionality begins. <clears throat> and our roles and all these callings and responsibilities Paul is bringing to the church's attention. And he has no trouble moving into function. But what I want us to see first here this morning is how does he get us there? How does he set up function in the church? He sets it up, notice again, he sets it up by showing us the mercy of God and causing the church to remember all the things we've just discussed about the mercy of God. In view of all that mercy that we've just seen, therefore, do something. The mercy of God, the salvation of God, the saving act of God. I think it was John Stott who said, divine love, this is the saving action of God, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. Now, if that is and gets at the essence of what the saving action of God is, then you can clearly see why Paul is able to translate theology into practice. You've seen this. You know what mercy looks like. You know what the self-sacrificing death of God looks like. And then what does he do with that? He turns around and says, you can die too. You can lay down your life too because you've seen, you've considered the mercy of God in giving His life for the church. And now to be the church, guess what we get to do? We get to die and give our life for the church. It's not as though there is a wonderful truth in Christ being our substitute. But there's also a wonderful truth contained in the New Testament that He's our example. It's not like we can say vicariously, oh, Thank you, Jesus, for dying and giving your life for the church. No, thank you for dying and giving your life to the church. And then turn around and say, you die and give your life to the church. You follow me. And what that's going to look like, by the way, is taking up your cross. The kingdom is going to look like everyone in the church, every follower of Christ, taking up his cross. And by the way, the king himself of the kingdom took up his cross to get the whole thing started. This is the transition. This is why it makes sense for Paul to move out of theology into practice. John 13, 13 through 15. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. <laughs> so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. 
What does that look like? Well, we read the next several verses. It looks like working and serving and contributing to the cause of the mission of the gospel through the local church. Here's a question that I have when when I read this passage. is Paul, how how did you get so much buy-in from the church? You know what I mean by that? How, How did you get the church to get on board with this? Because you read the Bible and you do see a lot of these people apparently were doing this stuff. Because he would commend them for their role in the, the local churches in which they were serving, the way that they were laying down the lives, the way that they were valuing the kingdom of God over everything. And they, they counted it a joy to give up all of their goods. And then in Acts chapter 4, they're coming together saying, nothing belongs to me. You need a car? Oh, use mine. Everything was being laid down for the movement and the advancement of the gospel through the mission of the church. And there was so much buy-in in reading through the New Testament. How did that happen? To some degree, they had something working for them in the ancient first century Roman-dominated world that we don't have working for us in the 21st century of America. Persecution. You think about the impact that persecution would have had and how the moment people think of the kingdom... They take the kingdom seriously because the kingdom is life and death. And so persecution in and of itself would probably weed out a lot of people who just wanted to play Christian games and play and tamper with the Christian religion. Because to take the label was immediately to reckon with the idea that you might die for it soon. And so probably many people, many Romans, would just go on their Roman way worshiping their pagan gods doing their own thing, raising their families, and hopefully dying a less painful death than their Christian neighbors. But pick up from ancient Rome and swing over to modern America, and things are quite different, aren't they? Because there's no Nero in America. It's not like President Bush is giggling in the Oval Office about mass extermination of Christians. That's not some agenda that he's got. It's a pretty happy, friendly world for Christians. I mean, they have the lobby groups that might get on our back every now and then. But for the most part, the guy at the job minds his own business. He doesn't come and sabotage your screensaver that says Jesus is Lord. And he, he, while you're gone, he puts, I hate Jesus. And, you know, Christians are losers. That, that stuff is not happening, generally speaking, in the American world. We're a pretty tolerant society, aren't we? So these would seem to be happy days for Christians, wouldn't they? Or maybe not. Maybe persecution would sober the church up again and get us to realize how serious the movement of the kingdom is for our lives and not to lose it in the trivial noise of everything that's going on around us. Persecution served that early church. The problem, though, in modern times is that Not only is persecution not here, but this new injected philosophy of consumerism is tearing us apart. It is raping the mission of the church and totally plundering our success. You think about the statistics of America and the lack of impact that the church is having on society. 
it's impossible to turn a blind eye to the lack of impact that the gospel is having in this country. The same gospel that Paul preached in Rome that he wasn't ashamed of because he believed it was God's power to save. Well, we have this message of God's power to save. How come nobody's getting saved? How come society's not turning its ear to the church? How come we're not shaking the kingdoms of this world with this powerful gospel? Well, part of it is that the church has bought into this consumerism idea and has suddenly turned around and is polling the culture for how to do church. Literally walking around to the neighborhoods and saying, what do you like about church? What, what would you like if you were building a church? What would you want? Oh, oh no, no questionnaires. No, no sign-up lists? Oh, no, no giving records. <laughs> what else would you like? Oh, no cross on the wall. That's offensive. Let's pull that down. Uh, short messages. All these things. And meanwhile, the church is literally taking notes and structuring what the church is going to look like based on this. And you know what the church is doing? It is reinforcing consumerism in the culture, rather than contending with it, with the gospel and the kingdom message, it is reinforcing the very message that will spell destruction for our mission as members of the kingdom of God. These are dangerous times. We would be happy to think of this service, and in one sense, every service, as a big ordination service. Just one big ordination service where everybody hears their call to the Christian life, turns around and walks out of here with a sense of mission that I have a part to play in the kingdom of God. I have a part to play in the functioning of the church. I have a part to play to strengthen and boost the health of the church. That would be a great way to look at it from the New Testament where it, it flings open the doors of the, of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers that was reclaimed in the Reformation, where they said, this isn't just supposed to be about a few clergy members. Get everybody on board. Everybody grab a rope. Everybody moving this thing forward. And it revived and it brought life. And that's why, that's why the Reformers had this motto over the top of what they were doing. And it was post-Tenebras Luke's after darkness, light. Because once they started to get people involved in the movement of the kingdom, once they were giving them their own translations of the Bible, once they were empowering them to serve in everyday ways, things were turning around. Dead leaves were falling away and new life was blossoming in the life of the church. And they were saying the medieval days are officially over. After darkness, light. What we can't get from Romans 12, and we can't get it beginning in Romans 1, when Paul says, I want to come to you so that, in part, we might benefit from our mutual relationship, so that I might receive from you, you might receive from me. He begins the letter there, but there's never a sense in which the apostles say, you know, the way that the kingdom really moves forward when they hear our online messages, you know, 
when they read our covenant group leader bios, they will turn to Jesus. They will come to know God. They will surrender their lives for the mission of the kingdom. No. No, he's saying, as you do throughout the New Testament, not just this passage, as you do this, and when you work, and and in the ways that you relate to one another, when you're persecuted, you do this, and when you say this, and when you live with this perspective, that's how this whole thing moves. The whole New Testament is full of that kind of language, of people-empowering language, of grab, grab the body with everything that you can grab and go for the mission of the church in the world because you have a part to play. That's the language of the New Testament. Well, let's look for a moment at three essentials for functional membership. The first is living for the glory of God. Functional membership as a part of Christ's body touches all of life. This is in your notes, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Look at Romans, our passage from this morning earlier. Verse 1, appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship tends to be something that we think of has more to do with our gathering together, right? Well, Paul in Romans 12 is trying to make sure worship leaves the building. That worship becomes everything that we do in our lives. It touches holiness and it touches discernment and proving the will of God and the decisions that we make. It touches literally everything, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. John Piper has a piece in a new book that he's written, a chapter called How to Drink Orange Juice for the Glory of God. (laughs) I think that's exactly what's in Paul's mind here. Worship pervades everything. It's supposed to get much farther beyond a couple hours in a meeting. It takes over our lives. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In this passage, Paul is reminding us of a twofold claim that Christ has on every believer's life. And he begins by saying, in verse 16, toward the end, all things were created through him and for him. So Christ has a claim on our lives as as what? As our creator. And this language is picked up throughout the Bible. It tends to be that when, when God comes and reminds the people that he's their maker, that's not a very good day. It, it's kind of like when your mom calls you with your middle name included. <laughs> when God says, I, your maker, say this. Or, you said, what did you just say to me? Clay to the potter? Who formed you? When God does that, he's pulling rank on his people, isn't he? He's saying, I own you. I made you. You're mine. I made you. You are mine. But Paul doesn't stop with the creator claim. He moves to another claim. Because what happened after creation? Fall. We fell from God, from God's grace. We fell into sin. And now we're estranged from God. We've broken covenant. Well, now what happens? Now, Jesus says, Behold, I come, and lo, it's written in the book, Bulls and goats you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And so he comes, and he dies, and he sacrifices his own life to do what? To buy back his people. To purchase them out from bondage and slavery and the ownership of their self-imposed service to Satan. Service to the kingdom of this world. And so he comes, and with his own blood, he purchases. That's what the word redeems means. He redeems the church. He buys us off the auction block of sin. And now what? Now we're twice claimed. We're claimed by the Creator, Jesus, through him and for him. And in this passage, we're claimed by his death, which bought us back. And that's serious business for Jesus, because it means... He commands much more than this meeting. He commands everything in our lives. He commands, you live to my glory, not for your own. You are not your own. What does it say? You were bought with a price. That's that's not the creator claim. That's Christ, the redeemer's claim on our lives. The moment we start thinking that God's saving action in our lives necessitates self-denial, the revoking of our rights as consumer and self-sovereign, we are starting to see a very important aspect of what biblical Christianity is all about. Remember Jesus' original call? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Neither of his two selling points were very sellable to consumeristic culture, were they? Uh, okay, wait, you want me to follow you? And the incentive package would be, uh, it would be denying yourself and it would be taking up your cross. How's that sound? <laughs> it doesn't sound very good, particularly now. And so, cultural Christianity means there are lots of Christians with no cross on their back with no denial of self going on, with no sense of the mission of Jesus Christ in the earth, 
a lot of the people, sadly, who are at the table of this conversation in Christian leadership right now about what does the church do now? We're full of consumerism in America. What do we do now? Sadly, a lot of the people in the conversation are saying, why don't we go ahead and accommodate to the culture? Why don't we go ahead and knock out this whole self-denial thing? That, how do we get the mission on? How do we do this thing if we don't do it the way that he said to do it in the first place? Christ claims our lives as Lord. It's what Lord means. Owner. Master. He tells us where to go. We do his bidding. Consumerism has come and it touches the church's attendance roster, offering plate, and sign-up list. And God wants to touch them too. And that's where we have a decision to make. Are we really a follower of Jesus Christ? Are we really willing to back up with action what we mean when we call Him Lord? Functional membership involves seeing the importance of serving working, relating, and growing for the glory of God. Two, valuing the corporate gathering. The Christian life is much more than a gathering, but it isn't less than a gathering. And the gathering is something that must be contended for today. And again, that is because of this radical accommodation that's going on in the church where there's there's a high-maintenance, low-yield Christianity in the church. And it's to the point where even the once-a-week service is burdensome. It's, I, I, you know, it's just so hard to get there. I, I have so many other things, you know, that, that are going on and things on the weekend and you know, important, important things to take care of. You know, when am I going to cut my grass and... All these sorts of ideas come in. It's like they, they don't belong in this conversation. We're talking about the kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? My kingdom is not of this world. Let your grass get a little taller. <laughs> Build my church. That's what Jesus is about in the world. That's the most important thing in the world. I remember hearing in, in a, a series that uh, C.J. Mahaney did at Covenant Life, A Passion for the Church. He talked about passion for the church being the most important thing in life, no matter what you do vocationally. Someone came up to him at the end, apparently, and said, look, you know, I, that good message and stuff, but um, really, you guys are supposed to have more of a passion for the church than we are. I mean, really, I, I'm supposed to take care of my job. God has given me this job. And, and so you guys really run with more of the passion for the church than we do. And CJ said, respectfully, you are wrong. <laughs> the church is what our life is about. It's why we were left here, to build the kingdom of God, to work while it's day. Scott was praying this morning. By the way, and it would have been wonderful just to turn this, the prayer meeting from this morning around and preach that right out. Just let the people who were praying say what they said. Thank you for those of you who are here this morning praying with such passion for the movement of the kingdom. 
much of the current talk about the kingdom is unidirectional. And what, what I mean by that is that a lot of the, church, the, the talk that's going on now says that the mission of the church is all and totally outward. There's only one direction in the movement of the kingdom, and it's the move from the church out. And that is simply not true. In the New Testament, there are two directions to the kingdom mission. It's not just Matthew 28, go into all the world. It is come and forsake not the assembly of yourselves, as is the manner of some. You need encouragement. You need exhortation. You need the preaching of the word. Come, and then we get equipped, and then we go. And what do we do after we go? We gather, and we reach. And after we reach, what do we do? We come. Where? Back to that local body. It begins somewhere. The kingdom begins somewhere. It goes somewhere, and it comes back somewhere. It's got both directions. It can't just be one. And it would be a tragic thing if... The, the message of today's Christianity catches and starts to give people the impression that, you know what, the only time you're really building the kingdom are in local taverns and soup kitchens and not in the church. The New Testament simply does not comprehend that kind of language. It doesn't allow that kind of language. It militates against that type of language. And... The whole go command, this is, this is the criticism that's coming from, quote-unquote, the emerging conversation, the emerging church movement is bringing this criticism. The church hasn't been going for decades. It's irrelevant. It's all get out. Everybody just thinks you guys are a bunch of fundamentalist wackos with your own language, your own subculture that you cling to, and you don't even know how to contextualize the gospel for us. We don't even understand a word you're saying. By the way, you're not even around us. Okay? Valid criticism. The church needs to go ahead, submit, take its wax, repent, and change in those categories. We've got to reclaim Matthew 28, the go commands of Scripture. We can't make it all one direction. Come in here. Come in here. Oh, we want to reach them. Bring them here. We've got to go. We've got to reach them with compassion. We've got to do mercy ministry. But what would be tragic is, okay, we're stinking it up and go, and we're doing okay and come. So what we do is we turn around and make the church all about go, and we tell them to stop coming. The one thing the church has got going for it is people are coming to those churches that aren't reaching. So why don't, instead of we say, stop coming and just go, why don't we say, when you come, let's tell you about what it means to go. Why don't we change what the church is saying? If we have people in the church who are not evangelistic, let's tell them to be evangelistic. Let's open the Bible and say, Jesus was evangelistic. Paul was evangelistic. Walk through the New Testament and do that. If, if, if they're talking with their neighbors, the neighbor says a cuss word, they hold their ears and run inside. Well, that's a problem, but let's adjust that when we come together. Let's tell the church how to go, but let's not say, look, it's all about going, so why should we show up here? If you really want to do kingdom work, show up at the Humanity Center next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and we'll really build the kingdom. Baloney. <laughs> the place to be at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning is the gathering. There is no better place to be for the building of the kingdom at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning than the gathering of the body of Christ. That's where we get equipment to be missionaries. We pack our bags, we get our canteens, we load everything up, and then we go out into the world and we do it. 
But we've got to come. And we need to reclaim and contend for the value of the service. Hebrews 10.23 And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The gathering of the saints is a non-negotiable in God's word. It is vital. It is not optional for all believers. And it's the most important thing happening on Sunday morning. I think something needs to be said on that particular point as well. Because it's so easy, it's so easy to buy into the consumerism of our culture and to start one by one getting new categories for what is valid in an excuse to miss church. And if we think and we run back and we leave our times because we're blind, we're blind to our times so often. If we leave our times and we go back to Romans where there was persecution, where these people needed that meeting, where these people, they knew, I've got to get there. I've got to hear God's people sing. I've got to hear them pray. I've got to receive prayer. I need to be encouraged because it's a stinking satanic world out there. Nero's picking them off one by one. And they know we've got to cling to fellowship. We've got to get our strength out of that meeting. I need to be there. I think if we would look at that, we would realize how much they knew they needed it. And maybe John Calvin was right when he said the church cannot be rightly trained except by the frequent scourges of God. Maybe that's the only thing that would sober up the church and say, Oh, you forgot that you needed this meeting, didn't you? I'm going to go ahead and remind you how much you need this meeting. And we'd be asking for four or five of them a week to come together, to fellowship, to share, to pray, to receive communion, to hear the word proclaimed. If we needed it as much as they needed it, but we don't, and that signals a problem. Why don't we need the gathered body? Why don't we need it as much as we need to be at the t-ball game on Sunday morning or Saturday morning for our context? How can we contend again against the idol of consumerism wherever it lives in our hearts and say, God, attack this idol and bring it down because I need everything that you say I need. And if you say I need that gathering, I need that gathering. And nothing's going to stop me from being that gathering. The assaults of Satan on the Roman Christians were not more vicious than they are today. In fact, to some degree, his assaults are much more fruitful today. Because when you think about the fact that all he was doing then was killing the body of a bunch of Christians. Jesus said that was going to come. He prophesied. He told the disciples all around. He's like, no, you're, you'll die, and you'll die too. And, and that's just the order of the day. Those who follow me will receive, will suffer persecution. That's the given from the very beginning. And so when it starts happening, the people of God start to actually rejoice. And it becomes, as the early church said, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The church is growing because people are dying 
that Jesus was saying to the church right when he was beginning everything, saying, don't fear the one who can take your body and throw you into a, uh, uh, an arena and have lions tear you to shreds. Don't fear that guy. No, you fear me. So, people were dying in the church. Okay? Now, with consumerism wreaking havoc in the church, gifts are lying dormant. The kingdom mission is being pushed to the margins of life. And the kingdom is getting almost nowhere in this country. That's why they're speaking of, the sociologists are speaking of this being a post-Christian, post-evangelical country. The center of Christianity has officially, David Wells said this, I listened to an interview, has officially moved east. And we are no longer in Christendom. We are no longer enjoying the chaplaincy over this country that we once enjoyed. They don't care what we say anymore. And if they do care, it's only because we've accommodated so far. We're not asking them to do anything. We need to recover passion for the mission of God. And really, all these issues that we're talking about in this series could seem self-serving, couldn't they? Might it seem self-serving when when a pastor comes up and says, you know what, God's word says as a church we're supposed to be giving. Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's nice for you to say. God says as a church we're supposed to attend. All of us coming to all the meetings. Numbers game, hmm, just trying to grow a big church, trying to build a kingdom. <laughs> right? Can't that seem very self-serving? And audacious for pastors to get up and say the sorts of things that that the New Testament talks about are, are essential to the mission of the church? Well, the, the most audacious thing that we could say, without question, would be for us to open the Bible before you, read the Bible together, close it and say, we don't have to do this. That would be the most audacious thing you could ever hear here. And by the way, if you ever hear it, run for your life. And tell CJ and the other guys to come shut the doors behind you. (laughs) Because we are no longer a church that trusts in where we began. The authority of the Word of God. If we do commit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, guess where we'll be next Saturday morning? Here. All of us. Matter of fact, we may need more seats. If as a church we buy into the reality that God commands this. He commands it for our good, but He commands it. Functional membership involves valuing the gathering which exists to glorify God, to strengthen our faith, to inform our decisions, and to embolden our witness. Third, using your gifts to build up and to reach out. Edmund Clowney says this in his book, The Church. The church's service has three goals. To serve God in worship, to serve one another in nurture, and to serve the world in mission. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 3? I say to everyone among you. And then he just gives this list. I'm just going to read. I'm going to paraphrase. Be humble. Discover your gifts. Use them. Prophesying, serving, teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, caring. Love your fellow church members. Abhor evil. Hold fast to good. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful. Be fervent. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. Be patient. Pray much. Contribute resources. Show hospitality. Bless your enemies. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony. Do not be haughty or conceited. Relate to the poor and the outcast. 
Live peaceably. Do not avenge yourselves. Feed your enemy. Overcome evil with good. That's a busy church. There's a lot for us to do. And it's not just for a few people to do it. You see, when the kingdom is going to really move is when out of 500 people or so in this church, all 500 are grabbing their role in the church and running forward with the kingdom mission. The question is, what's your role? What are you doing? Are you serving? Are you contributing? Are you attending? Is this His passion, your passion? Even your natural gifts play a part in this. Edmund Clowney goes on to say, In advancing the work of the Spirit, we cannot sharply separate natural gifts from spiritual gifts. Both come from the Creator's Spirit. There's a difference between those abilities that have been ours from childhood and new gifts that surprise us in service. Yet even spiritual gifts are often renewed and heightened forms of natural gifts. Desire to please the Lord clarifies our purpose. We discover the gifts He supplies and earnestly pray for greater ones. Not to enhance our role, listen, but to get the job done. To reach a neighbor, teach a child, feed the hungry, counsel the confused, correct the erring, save a marriage, to endure and even befriend a boss. Now, do you see how functional membership gets into all kind of categories that we may have never assumed the kingdom went? We may never have assumed that the kingdom goes into the workplace. It does. Ask Phil Widener. I worked with Phil at Toyota and saw the way that he was looking for opportunities to either just demonstrate kindness and integrity or to, to counsel a guy on the sales floor who had a rough night the night before, or to pray with people, to call Bible studies on different mornings. Phil caught a vision for something. He caught a vision for, when I leave the church, I've got a job to do. And guess what? I go to Toyota every week at the time. Every week I'm there. I spend a great deal of time there. How about I think of ways I can build the kingdom there? How about I'm always on the kingdom clock? When I'm relating to people in the break room, I'm on the kingdom clock. I'm representing the church. You're representing this local church in every single thing you ever do. You gossip about your neighbor? This church gets a black eye for it. Seriously. But you build the kingdom. You lay down your life. People say, what church do you go to? That's, that's different than a lot of the Christianity we've been seeing out here. Why, what are you doing serving? What are you doing cleaning up my yard? Your, your own yard's in disrepair. Well, I'm here to serve you. You're not trying to put a notch in our belt. I'm here to, to save you. I mean, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. To care for you. To show you God's love and compassion. And then they'll ask. And we'll be building the kingdom all the while. God shows us where the action is. And the action is all over the place. We work where he's working. Look at this quote from Gibbs and Bolger. The missio dei, that's the, the Latin for the mission of God, precedes the church. And so the issue is not where to bring or take God, to, but to find God where he is working. And to participate in redemption according to God-given skills and abilities. The starting point for mission is that God is a missionary God. 
who is active in the world. God invites and beckons us to join his mission. So in this sense, we join in with what God is doing rather than taking God with us. Now, to pull this whole mission thing off, again, what we need is everyone serving, everyone finding out. You're supposed to be exhorting, caring. What what ministry outreach, what aspect of kingdom building are you going to get on board with and build with us? I want to illustrate this for us this morning. Let me just read this bracketed area. Functional membership involves committing our resources, time, gifts, and abilities for building up the church and reaching out to the community. Now, the concept of every member doing ministry, every member contributing some little part to the whole picture, to a larger scenario that is doing something and expressing something as a whole, is not simply rooted in the Bible. We can find that all over the place. It's a wonderful truth that a lot of people claim. Now, we can take Romans 12, pick it up out of ancient Rome, and move it over, say, to Uganda. Now, in the absence of Ugandan friends, we have Eric Schmaltz from St. Rose, Kurt Roberts from the Eastern Bank of Metairie, and then David Loria from the Loria tribe. I, I listened uh, t- two Friday nights ago, and I heard an interview on the radio. They were talking with a man who's held to be one of the, perhaps the greatest living American composer. His name is Steve Reich. Or Reich. And they were talking with this man, a brilliant man, very gifted man. He, he's interested in everything from quantum mechanics to computers to translating the Old Testament Hebrew to writing staggeringly creative compositions that wow audiences across the world. He talked about this new composition he had put together and he had to go to Africa to study the tribal culture of Africa. And he said this, he said, when I went to Africa, I discovered that some of the tribes communicate their culture through rhythm. And the way that they do that was fascinating. He said, there would be in that tribe many different families. And one particular family, say, say the Swanson family in the Bume tribe of Africa. <laughs> That's fun to imagine. So the Swansons are in the Bume tribe. Uh, Bob bone through nose Swanson. And what the Swanson family would be doing is playing when they would get together and have their cultural festivals to express their culture as an entire tribe. The Swanson family would play a particular beat. Help us out. Would play a particular beat. Okay. There it is. Simple enough. They would play that beat every time this tribe would get together to express its cultural life. And that family, though, he would have adapted that beat and gotten that beat from his father. His father would have played the exact same beat. As a matter of fact, for the past 2,000 years, Reich said, that exact same beat would be played by the Swanson family. And then all the other families would start to join in. Okay, bring it on, Kurt. All the other families would bring their tribal music to the tribe. And this would be an expression that would run all the way through the ancestry of the Roberts family for thousands of years in the tribe. So they'd be all together 
David, hook us up. Something funky. There you go. So these beats would not change. They would go on and on and on. And within those would be the particular expression of a family as well as the celebration of the culture and everything that that group of people in that tribe had experienced over the courses of thousands of years. Now, it gets more dangerous than this because we're going to try to interact with this, okay? We're going to do something that is suicidal for a church with this many white people. We're going to try, all of us together, to play our own beat with them. That's the operative word, with them, okay? If you can't come up with a beat, and we're not going to do this long because it will probably break apart soon. If you can't play anything else, just do this. Ready? Three, four, one. Okay? If you could do something better, go for it. Okay? Everybody? Get your groove on. Yeah. Everybody? Some of you guys don't like participating in this kind of stuff, do you? (laughs) That's our culture. That's nice. It's a little honky, but it's nice. All right. One, two, three, four, stop. Not... All right. Well, that's all fun, and that's all interactive and stuff and cute. But the, the point of it is everybody's got a beat to play. And when those beats all come together, we express our life as a church. We express the kingdom mission together. Now, think about the negative side of that, though. As I was listening to this interview, and later on when it was over, I was thinking, what happens when a culture gets exterminated? What happens when the Bume tribe goes out with the Suri tribe, and they get into a, a warfare situation, and half the Bume tribe is knocked out, killed? And then they come back, and they... Listen to their cultural expression, and it's full of gaping holes in the rhythm. Can you imagine how tragic the sound would be for them to say, I, I remember the part that the, the Swansons played. I remember their part is missing. Where's that extra beat? Where's that whistle? Where's that bell that used to get hit? Right there. And that would be bittersweet. It would be sweet because the beat goes on. The mission continues. The tribe is still alive. We live another day. But we're not all playing. We're not all here. Some of you have never been here in the rhythm of the culture, in the rhythm of the mission of the kingdom. And and there are exciting prospects for you. Because to the degree that we commit to the authority of God's word and we buy it lock, stock, and barrel. And we say, I'm going to try that on. I'm going to beat my drum. However imperfectly that is, I'm going to beat my drum to the glory of God in this church. To the degree that we do this, the kingdoms of this city will start to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And that is a huge massive undertaking that we could never accomplish on our own. So there's a sense in which even the hitting of the drums is a supernaturally stirred event. God the Holy Spirit comes in and enables us to keep time to do what He's called us to do, to find our place, to find our beat 
or our backbeat or wherever it is that there's a hole. There are holes in our life as a church. If we were all playing together, we would hear holes. We need more mercy ministry. There's, there's not enough sound happening in that area. We need more covenant group life. We need more people in the church joining to accountability and fellowship and everyday encouragement, getting on the phone and sending emails and saying, I was praying for you this morning. We need, there are beats that are not sounding the way that they need to sound, the way that they will sound, and it will be music, not only to God's ears, to the city's ears. That's what I love about this song that we sing from John Wesley. When the kingdom gets on, it's music in the sinner's ear. Not just music to our ears. Because as we get about our life as a local church, as a body, we find our gifts. God is being glorified. The church is getting healthier. The city's getting happier. And God is getting glory. Let's pray. Let me read this covenant commitment to us. I agree that being a member of the body of Christ means that God has ordained me to function in the body and to serve the body. I therefore commit to discover how God has called me to serve and to grow in faithfulness and effectiveness in fulfilling that call. I agree that God calls me to further His work of making disciples. I therefore commit to embrace the responsibility to share the gospel and to do what I can to help others grow in their relationship with Christ. I agree that God calls me to pray for His will to come to pass in and through the church. I therefore commit to make personal and corporate prayer a priority in my life so that God's will for me and through me is accomplished. I agree that God calls me to support the mission of the church from the finances He has provided in my life. I therefore commit to follow the biblical pattern of giving on a regular basis as the Lord provides for me and to be open to the Holy Spirit leading me to consider additional sacrificial giving. Lord, we, we are here before you we want to bring our lives underneath your word but we don't want to be self-serving God we do not want to be cultural Christians we don't want to be consumers Lord help us to be active help us to see your mission to be captured by it Help us to not sit on the sidelines, Lord, but suit up to take the field for your glory, for your kingdom to go forward, for your gospel to be made known. We need you, God. But help this message to not be something we just hear, but we apply. May we not leave here and then just the natural sort of effects of a meeting and response and then we leave and we forget about the mission of the kingdom and we get lost again in the noise of this 21st century modern life Lord may your rhythm be the only one that we hear may everything be a distant second may we see every aspect category every room in our lives through the lenses of the gospel mission. For your glory we pray. Amen. Thank you all. God bless.